good morning, everyone. Michael's taking a big picture, which is unusual for Michael. He likes to dive deep, doesn't he? So looking at the Word of God, book by book, and I've been actually listening to his messages and seeing how important it is to understand the Word of God. Sometimes if you dive deep all the time, you miss the big picture. And sometimes if you do the big picture all the time, you don't understand the importance of the details. And so I'm, I'm glad he's doing that. And so if he's going to go big, I'm going to go big. And I'm not going to go to the next book. I'm going to let him do that. Instead, I want to take a, a big picture view myself. Back in um, the late 70s, I was but a child. And my wife and I went to Poland, which was still a communist country at the time, to teach. God had begun doing an incredible movement there. Uh, pope John Paul II had just been anointed as the new pope. And, uh, but what was happening in the nation of Poland was a remarkable, remarkable revival led by Campus Crusade and other organizations. And uh, many priests and nuns had got involved and they were using the four spiritual laws to win people to Christ. And every Sunday, the streets were full of people going to church. But the authorities did not care for that very much. And there were some crackdowns. And so we went over to teach. Bibles were illegal. And so we went over to teach Bible to college students in Poland for about three months, four months. And we were hiding out in the southern parts of Poland. I say hiding out. We just were trying to avoid the militia and everything else that would cause us distress. And I remember the first time uh, we began to speak how these incredible, they came from five countries, incredible young men and women had a hunger for the word of God. They didn't have the word of God. Some of them had a couple pages of it. Nobody had a full Bible or a full New Testament or anything. And so we would teach them for four hours in the morning, four hours in the afternoon, several hours in the evening for 15 days. And they sat, we would have maybe 15, 20, 30, sitting on a cement floor taking notes day after day after day. So how are these college students doing this? So during that the second 15 week, that second, uh, excuse me, 15 day, that fortnight of study, about the fourth day, they decided that they needed to wash their clothes because it was warm in the summer and they were going to wash their clothes over lunch instead of eating lunch. And it was about 11 o'clock. We were going to stop at noon. It had been going for three hours. I said, tell you what, why don't we take a break? You guys go get some rest and then we'll pick up in the afternoon. And those students looked at me horrified. And they kept saying, Teres, Teres, which in Polish means no, now, now. They didn't want to miss a thing. The hunger for the word of God among college students and some high school students was something that I had never experienced and have never gotten over since. Because when we see regimes like the communist regime in Eastern Europe af afraid of the Bible, it means there's probably something to it. And I say that after I flew in from LA late last night and I left my Bible somewhere. Um, but I have, I have several of them, I'm borrowing one this morning. But you know, we have Bibles, don't we? 
we have Bibles, don't we? We have Bibles, don't we? I mean, we've got Bibles everywhere. And we say, what a blessing. Or is it? Maybe it's because it's so accessible we've lost sight of why God gave us his word. So what I want to do, I've, I'm speaking this weekend, of course, next, next Sunday as well. Lynn will be with me next Sunday. Some of you have met her. She's very sweet. But I want us to take a, a step back and understand why. Have you ever thought about that why? And I'm going to kind of segue into what God is doing in the world now is amazing. We look at the Old Testament, as Michael's been teaching through, we see God is doing incredible things back then. This is the same God. He hasn't stopped. He gives us some insight through the text, and we see the great movements both in the lives of people and that divides cultures and that which transforms cultures and so on. He hasn't stopped. And it's in the word of God that we understand what he does and why he does it, and it motivates us to want to be involved. One of the last things we want to do is to think, well, all of this was great. I'm so glad God was active back in those days because now we have a Bible we can read and we can enjoy that. And so God is at work now. Over 100,000 people come to Christ every single day. About 20,000 of them are Muslim every single day. And we may live in a culture where we wonder what in the world is going on. So much confusion, so much uncertainty. But guess what? God is still God, and God is still working. And he wants us to get involved in that. So, Michael draws us back many times to the, the Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and so on. Are we there? There we go. And this is the very beginning of the church where the, the writer says, Luke says, they devoted themselves to four things, right? The apostles' teaching, which is basically the word of God and the teachings of Jesus, to fellowship together, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I don't know, Michael makes a big deal out of prayer being something that's important, and I'm gonna talk about that too as we look big picture-wise. Book by book, we see God's unfolding story, which is crucial. So let me give you the four major acts because a lot of times when I go and speak to people, I speak to people, most of the people I speak to know nothing about the Bible, whether it be in foreign countries or whether it be secular people in our culture. In fact, most of what I do, I, I work with the Colson Center. I'm a senior fellow with the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I do a lot of writing and speaking and help the Colson Fellows Program, which I'll tell you about it sometime. But I do a lot of writing as well. I write about popular culture from a biblical perspective. I wrote uh, the top 2018 movies and what it says about our culture. Uh, if you've ever seen the, movie, the television show, The Good Place, I wrote a piece on that from a perspective. And I just wrote one on uh, Stephen Hawking smuggled Bibles into Russia. Did he really? Is that just clickbait? Well, <laughs> but the, the reality is sometimes we, when we get into scriptures, we don't think it has anything to do with what is going on in Twitter, you know, or in the White House, or in the Final Four, or, you know, but it does. 
It really, it really does. Well, God's story, you know, has four major acts. The first, of course, is creation. That's where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created everything, everything. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see God not only bringing things into existence, but also being the Lord of all of it as well. And within each of these acts, there are two scenes. The first scene, of course, is God creating the universe. Now, my background is in science and mathematics at the universities, and uh, I love reading astrophysicists just like all of you do, and theoretical physicists. <laughs> there, are, there are so many of these guys on YouTube. It is amazing. And uh, in fact, uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis who pointed out that theoretical physicists understand more about creation than most theologians do. Yeah, and I think that's really true. Because the whole idea of time, the whole idea of God bringing it into existence and so on is absolutely amazing. Once you have that theistic perspective, you begin to be in awe of what God has made and understand the power that is actually in, in all of that. God brought the universe into existence and then the special creation of, of our world and particularly of humanity. Created us in his image and likeness of all the things you created in life and so on, but created us in his image and likeness. Created us male and female. Many of the struggles that we have in our culture today go right back to creation theology. God created us in his image and likeness, none of the animals, nothing else, humanity. And he created us male and female. I don't need to say anymore, okay? I mean, it's, it's, it's self-evident. And so when we depart from that, that's when we begin to have challenges and struggles in, in culture itself. The second act is the fall, which occurred soon after creation in Genesis chapter three, okay? The fall also has two scenes. The first scene is where in the world, in the universe, did this serpent come from? What in the world is evil doing already? I mean, there's, there's no backstory. It just shows up. It just shows up. And tempts Adam and Eve. Well, tempts Eve. And Adam falls as well. Where did he come from? Well, we get some hints in Isaiah and Ezekiel, but still, where did it come from? There's more going on here. And it's an indication that a lot was happening than the story that we don't have privy and it's important that we understand that. But there is evil. And the whole idea of evil is not necessarily doing something nefarious, but it is disobeying God, becoming independent of God. Turning our hearts away from the one who created and oversees us and becoming our own gods in many ways. And it's that choice, that ability to choose to do that, that is the second scene in this act the presence of evil, and then humanity choosing to rebel, to become independent of God. And that one act, which is something that many writers talk about, why did God let them do that? Wouldn't it have been better if God kept them from doing that? And in God's, in God's wisdom, the answer is no. He wanted people, he wanted us to choose. You can't love without choosing, right? You cannot love without choosing to love. Nobody can make you love. They can make you obey, which is what they're saying. But God wanted a, a, a people that loved him. 
And the only way you can do that is to choose. And if you have the ability to choose him, you also have the ability not to choose him, which is what constitutes, what constitutes evil. And that's where we are now. We are living with the impact and the consequences of that rebellion, of that sin. Solzhenitsyn said that the line between good and evil is not between an ideology and not between nations, but goes right down the center of the human heart. Isn't that true? We all know that. We all know that, that to be true. The third act is redemption. Redemption began immediately, immediately after the fall, where God promised, God, God promised to bring redemption into the lives of the, those people, to bring them back. And there's also two scenes within redemption. We have, if, if you, for simplicity, we can say the Old Testament and the New Testament. God making a preparation, God choosing a people through whom he's going to speak. He gives his word through these people, the Jews. And we, through them we have the written word, the scriptures. And we have the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. And everything that God wants us to know can be summed up there in addition to the general revelation through his creation. And this is what is happening now. God's number one task, God's number one goal, God's number one vision is to bring redemption to all of us. That's what motivates God. And that's why he moves. That's why he uses us in that great, great plan. And then the fourth is restoration or consummation, however you want to see it. And there's two scenes within that as well. One is, many of you, when you came to Jesus Christ, you knew that you were different. Something happened to you, and it's the indwelling Holy Spirit because you, you are returning to God. But you also know that you're not completely saved in the sense of you're not in a glorified body yet. There's this already not yet. True? True. We, we wait for our salvation, but we're already saved, that kind of idea. And we look to the end of the scriptures and we see just that. If you, if you take, take your Bibles, what we have is not like most holy books are, where they have a lot of philosophy, a lot of theology, a lot of indications about what God's supposed to do, what you're supposed to do, and so on. But it's a story, isn't it? It opens with humanity in face-to-face -face relationship with God. And it closes with humanity in face-to-face -face relationship with God. And in between is the story that we are living out now. The story of how we rebel, the story of how God is trying to get his family back and doing everything he can, everything that he should for that to occur. By allowing us, allowing us the privilege of being able to choose. Now, the idea of the consummation, all you have to do is re get, read Revelation and you've got it all down, right? Figure it all out. And the idea of the restoration is not that God's gonna have more and more people come to Christ and therefore, here comes the kingdom. But somehow, some way, God is going to come and pull everything together at the end. I'm trying to avoid saying, oh, are you pre-mill or are you post-mill? Are you pre you know. One of these days when we get to heaven, we're going to go, I told you. So nobody's going to say that. 
Nobody will say that. I, um, I think I've, I shared this with some of you. I was uh, at our church. We, we lived in Dayton, uh, Ohio, and we had uh, a pretty good-sized church, and we decided to do something really interesting. I'm always doing things to get my knee in trouble, but I don't doesn't matter. But we had four people on the stage. We had a Buddhist monk. We had a Jewish rabbi. We had a Muslim imam. And then we had a Christian. And the pastor stood right over there and asked questions. And each person answered. Would you like to see that? No, we would, wouldn't we? Instead of me standing up, okay, here's what Buddhists believe and then tell you what they believe and tell you where they're wrong and where they're right, that kind of thing. But I mean, this guy's sitting up here in a saffron robe, okay? And it was mesmerizing, if you can imagine. People came out of the woodwork for that. And not just Christians, but Hindus and Muslims and Jews. And people had no idea what they were. They were there. And the pastor would ask questions like, Who's God? And each would answer. I got to be the Christian, by the way, because I, I, I am one, but I got to, got to, <laughs> I got to be one on stage. Okay. He asked the question, what is salvation? Who is Jesus? I mean, and it, this went on for a little over an hour. It was fascinating. And the last question he asked is, what happens when we die? The Buddhist fellow said, well, whatever you want to have happen will happen. The Jewish fellow said, this is really interesting. He was an Orthodox Jew. He said, we don't know. We just don't know. You look in the scripture, you know, there in the Old Testament. Sometimes you say, yeah, maybe there's life after. Maybe there's not life after. We don't know. And the Muslim fellow said, well, if you follow you know, the, the, the five steps and you do everything that you can to have more good than bad, then maybe Allah will let you come into paradise. We don't know, but maybe. Of course, I'm sitting there thinking, this is awesome. Because isn't it true that Jesus wanted us to know for sure what the future holds? In fact, the New Testament talks more about what the future holds than even the past. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said the night he was betrayed. You trust in God, trust in me. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, remember? I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm coming back for you. I mean, just awesome. And so I, I shared that enthusiastically somewhat, and uh, those three guys were looking at me like, what in the world? But it was powerful in recognizing the plan that God has to get his family back. And it's not you got to match up. It's not that you have to live up to the, the, the rules that he has. It's all grace. And it's so counterintuitive. I remember it took me a long time to understand what grace was. Because I was raised in a tradition and I wasn't very devout at all. But I tried to do all the right things because if I did something bad, I tried to do more good. You know how that is, that karma idea. Every, every religion is karma except Christianity. You know, it's important to know that, by the way. It's all of grace. 
all of grace. In fact, in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, he talks about a, a well-to-do lady who came up to him because he'd always do these Q&As after church, you know, and she came up to him and said, I think I'm beginning to understand this. She wasn't a Christian. She says, if, if I do all these good things, I can look at God and say, you owe me because I've been doing these good things. But what you're saying is, God doesn't owe me anything. That's right. That's what grace is. It's so undeserved, which makes it so powerful. In fact, I really believe, I'll talk about this next week, we should be people of grace. We should treat everybody with grace because that's how God treats us, right? Who are we to treat people differently than God does? I believe we should be the biggest tippers, right? I mean, we should. And one guy came up to me after I said that someplace. He said, what if you get bad service? You should not reward bad service. I said, why? He said, well, I had bad service just the other night. It was just terrible. And I did not tip her, and I told her why. I said, what'd you tell her? I said, she didn't deserve it. And I just stood there for a moment, and he started thinking, that's the whole idea of grace, isn't it? I said, yeah, you don't deserve it. (laughs) I said, you should have given her a bigger tip. But God has called us not only to do that, but to be a blessing and we'll look at a passage here and just say, but the idea of being a blessing, everywhere Christians are, we should be lifting up the culture around us. Last night I got in, it was really late. I think I was the only one in the Nashville airport last night. <laughs> and I had parked uh, somewhere, I couldn't remember where, I, I did have it on my phone though. And this big bus came and I was the only guy on the bus. And the guy that was driving, it was from out of town, you know, uh, and I said hi, he went, uh, and uh, it took 20 minutes because he had to go by every one, of, uh, every one of those places, you know, to finally get to where my car was. And as he was going, I started praying for him. And I started thinking, I need to do so. I need to be a blessing somehow. And so I t- took out a large bill and I was going to tip him. And so we got to where my car was and I went up and I said, here you go. God bless you. And he looked at the money and he grabbed my arm and said, hey, man. He says, I, I just got to shake your hand. I said, sure. I said, you know, God wants you to know that he has not forgotten you. And he got tears. He said, I know. He says, I've come a long, long way. And that's, that's the story. But you know, there are times when we get so wrapped up on ourselves, we forget we are called to be a blessing to the people around us, even if they don't appreciate it, even at the moment. I, I think that if we saw what God has for us, we would not lose sight of what God wants to do through us. So there, there are two huge truths that Michael's been sharing that come out, particularly in the Pentateuch. The first one is that God is at work redeeming the world. That's what God does. That's what, if if you're a father and you've got a wayward child, you've got a prodigal, that dominates you almost all the time, doesn't it? And a mother the same way. You want them back, it hurts. It hurts. The spirit is at work. In fact, in One of my favorite sermons in the Bible is Paul on Mars Hill, the Areopagus in Athens. 
And I got to stand where Paul was, because it's pretty clear where that was, and read that sermon, Acts chapter 17. And he's talking to people that aren't believers in God. He's talking to the Epicureans and the Stoics, the, the elite of Athens, trying to communicate Christ to them, which is, by, by the way, a good lesson. You know, you know your audience when, you, when you're speaking. And he talked about how God had created every person, everyone, and he placed them where he wanted them to be. For what purpose? So that they might, they might reach out. And the scripture says they might grope for God and find him. So even in the way people moves people groups around, in many cases, is the way God is bringing people to himself as, they, as people are praying for them. That's why I have a different perspective of immigration than a lot of people do. God is doing some amazing things. But the second big truth that, that Michael has been sharing, of course, is, is this, that we are called to live differently. You saw that in the letters of Peter, particularly. We are called to be non-conformists. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, starting right here by the renewing of your mind. And if you look at the teachings of Jesus, when he talks about non-conformity, I mean, he means non-conformity. It is so weird and so different and in some ways so bizarre as to be compelling. And I'm going to talk about that next week at the personal level. But I want to talk big picture here. I want to talk big picture because a lot of times when we, as I was saying, when we look at what God is, has done in the Old Testament, and so we forget that God is doing it now. God is doing it now. So let me share this verse with you in Genesis 12. Michael shared this a couple weeks ago as well. This is the covenant that God made with Abram. Go forth from your country, your relatives, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. But notice what he's going to do. He's moving him. Notice that? He's moving him. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be what? A blessing. To God's people, right? No, listen. So I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. We are still living in that covenant. Isn't that awesome? Because the fulfillment of this is going to be Jesus Christ. And then just two passages that, uh, if you want to look for some good redemption passages, there are only like 500 in the, in the Old Testament. But here are these two passages. Uh, Psalm 111, verse 9. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant. How long? Forever. Holy. Awesome. Is his name. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. God is getting his family back. And that's what we do. When I think about sharing Christ or being a blessing, that's what I think I'm doing. That's what I think that I'm doing to be, to be just that blessing. So what I want to do now, just for the next few minutes, 
is I want to take a big picture look at some historical things that you might find interesting at what God, God might be doing. Christianity is ridiculed. Much of culture is antagonistic to it. Christians are seen as dangerous. And there are cries for the government to in, not necessarily snuff the people out, but to at least put them on the margins of society. Now, I'm not talking about now. I'm talking about the first few centuries after Christ. And there are so many great stories. One of my favorite is um, about the monk known as Telemachus. And this is in the early 5th century. At the time, Christianity was a, um, the state religion. Constantine had converted. The persecutions had basically stopped, except in certain pockets around the Roman Empire. And the nation was officially the Holy Roman Empire. Churches, cathedrals were being built, and so on. But the culture was still very secular. In fact, what was still going on was the gladiatorial games. In fact, if they weren't going on, we never would have seen Russell Crowe in the gladiatorial <laughs> But gladiatorial games were something where people by the thousands gathered in the Colosseums in, the big in, in, in Rome where POWs were brought in to fight to the death while the crowd screamed and yelled their approval. The professing Christian crowd did. And Telemachus, as a monk, had never been to Rome. He came to Rome and saw the Colosseum, went into the Colosseum, and he saw this going on, and he could not abide it. And so as the story goes, by the way, Ronald Reagan told this story, if you're, if you're familiar with him. He jumped down. This is in uh, Theodoret, in the history of Theodoret. He goes down into the Colosseum floor. And the, the, the sight of this monk up there, down there waving his arms made everything go quiet. And everybody stopped. And he said something along the lines of, men, you are causing these people for whom Christ died. You are being entertained by them as they kill each other. This must stop. The story goes that a sign was given and he was either stoned or run through with one of the swords as the crowd screamed. And then the sight of this holy monk being murdered in front of them again caused there to be quiet. And as Ronald Reagan tells the stories, and one by one the people left the Colosseum and never again were the gladiatorial games held in Rome. One man Knowing Christ, one man seeing people through the eyes of Christ, even people unlike himself. When we talk about cultural change, when we talk about big movements, it doesn't have to be a lot of people. One committed person is far more effective than a thousand who are only interested. I think that's what God is calling. I think God has set up this cultural moment for believers and it's not going to come in Air Force One. It's not going to come in elections. It's going to come in us and our faithfulness and what we do, how we treat one another, which says to the world, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Our unity, which says to the world that God sent Jesus Christ, that's John 13, John 17. But how we reach out to the world. 
So I want to take just three instances in history and take some perspective, if you don't mind, and look at what God may have been doing behind the scenes. Well, when we think about what God has done, let's set this right here. The nation was struggling, racial division, economic struggles, and, and just uh, social, societal problems. 1858. A, a man, a, a layman, like one of you, decided that he wanted to start a, a prayer meeting. He lived in Manhattan, lower Manhattan. So he rented a space and put up signs all over lower Manhattan. Prayer, Wednesday, lunchtime, noon. First Wednesday he gets there and there's six people there, including himself. Six people in Manhattan. Six people. The next week, though, there were six people that came to pray. The following week, something happened. The stock market fell. There were more than six people there. In fact, in a few months, 10,000 people were meeting in lower Manhattan every day to pray, to pray. And it began to spread into other cities across the United States. It began to spread into England and Scotland and Ireland as well. And it's called the Third Great Awakening and continued and grew and grew over the next couple of years. In fact, it was so powerful that the two largest newspapers in New York City, which were very large, they dedicated whole issues to the revival. Now, remember the date. Now we're into 1860. What happens? A nation that was divided racially and politically was interestingly united spiritually. And as the Civil War set in, it was amazing what was happening. It was horrible, one of the darkest, probably the darkest time in our country's history. How in the world we, would we ever get through it? Well, the next year, the most popular book in the United States was a book by a French author. Victor Hugo. It was called Les Miserables. It's a story of Jean Valjean, a man who had, you know the story, he had stolen bread for his daughter's children because they didn't have any food, thrown into prison. And when he got out, he was a changed man not that he was that bad to start with, but the life and the grace-filled escapades of Jean Valjean are amazing. It was set within the context of the 1832 rebellion in, in Paris. And if you've read it, it's about this thick. And it is a powerful story of grace and forgiveness and, and the battle between grace and forgiveness and legalism. It was the number one book in America 
It was the number one book by soldiers in the north and soldiers in the south. The war they were fighting was in the context of this grace. In fact, many of the southern soldiers referred to themselves as Lee's Miserables. So powerful was this book. And when the war was over, it was amazing how our country was able to slowly seem back together. Still politically divided, still struggling socially, but the spiritual dimension was so strong and the understanding of grace was there. Did God use an author to do that? Maybe. Did God use the prayer revival to get our country through that? Probably, probably. And my point is, a lot of the things that we feel God leading us to do may have a huge impact way beyond what we ever imagined. But God is using people who want to be used by him. So let's fast forward a little bit. Maybe five and a half decades. to England, 1920s. Something strange begins to happen. Many of the elite intelligentsia in England started becoming Christians. Now this was the secular age there. They were just coming out of Darwin and Huxley. All these things were going on. And then the brightest and the best of England were becoming Christians. In 1922, Gilbert Keith Chesterton became a believer. G.K. Chesterton, most of you are familiar with the name, was an incredible journalist and writer. And when he became a follower of Christ, people went, well, that's really interesting. 1926, Graham Greene, one of my favorite writers, many of his books have been turned into novels. He uh, is haunted by the grace of God. The next year, 1927, T.S. Eliot. This began to shake people. T.S. Eliot was the quintessential modern poet. Everything goes back to the wasteland and the poets that they wrote. But it was 1930 when Evelyn Waugh became a believer. Waugh had written Brideshead Revisited, if you're familiar with that, but The Vile Body is considered the quintessential ultra-modern novel. And they, the English were so proud of Evelyn Waugh. Now he's a Christian. And they were saying, what is going on? Because smart people don't become Christians, right? When I go over and lecture in the former Soviet Union, what, what I find is scientists will come and they'll say, we don't get it how people in the West can be followers of Christ because we know that there is no God. That's, we've been raised in that. How can you believe in God? It's only women and children. And they are able to sit and talk with him about not only some of the proofs and some of the perspectives of what Christianity is, but to talk about the great men and women who've come to Christ, brilliant men and women who have come to Christ. And they usually say, why hasn't somebody told us this? In 1932, Clive Staples Lewis came to Christ. One of the most wonderful stories is reading about his conversion. How, as he was a professor at Oxford, of course, he got two doctorates simultaneously at Oxford. You know, just think about that. Not many people have ever done that. He was brilliant. He was an atheist. But he had a good friend who um, was a Christian, J.R.R. Tolkien. 
and another Hugo Dyson and others. And he struggled with them believing in God and so on. And they spent one night, uh, Alistair McGrath has a wonderful uh, biography and this chapter story is just great. They talk all night long because C.S. Lewis said, okay, maybe God exists, but I don't understand why Christianity would be the only one. And they talked all night long. And then he wrote his brother the next day and said, you know, uh, uh, Tolkien was very helpful in helping me to understand some things, but, you know, I'm still thinking about it. It wasn't until several, year, several months later that he came to Christ. In fact, he, <laughs> he went on a motorcycle to the zoo, the Oxford Zoo, and he, will, he says, when I got on the motorcycle, I wasn't a Christian. When I got there, I was. <laughs> and for many of you, that's how it happened too, you know. All the, you just realize, I'm, I, I believe. And so when somebody asked him, how do you become a Christian? He says, well, you get on a motorcycle. You know. <laughs> but sometimes God works on people's lives over a period of time. And then suddenly it just all comes together as the Spirit works. So you may be sharing Christ with friends, co-workers, family, your own children. Do not give up. Dude, pray. Pray and watch what God does. But give time and let the Spirit work in people's lives. So, but anyway, all this is going on now. But what's happening now? This is the mid-30s. What's happening in the United States? The Depression. And what's happening in England and Europe? They're all eyeing across the channel to this megalomaniac Adolf Hitler in Germany. What is he going to do? And they realize that they're going to have to, some way or another, deploy and so they asked C.S. Lewis if he would come and speak to RAF, the Royal Air Force bases. And he said, no, thank you. And they said, why? He says, I'm not used to speaking to the common man. You know, the guy's brilliant and two doctors. Please come and try. So he came and started to talk about Christianity to a group. And he said, I was terrible. Reading his, uh, uh, his uh, journal on this is great. But they thought it was great. And so he kept doing it, kept doing it. And finally, as war broke out and that horrible blitz from September through May, almost every night bombs being dropped from the Luftwaffe, they were gonna, everybody, everybody in the, the world, including most English, felt like they were gonna be invaded. And they asked C.S. Lewis if he would do these talks on the radio. About what? About, about Christianity. And so he started talking about what Christianity is and why it's so important, how you can believe in God, and what does it mean to follow Christ, and so on. And they were majestic. People would tune in. They would be overwhelmed. They'd listen to Churchill saying, we're going to fight on the beaches, we're going to fight. In, you know. And then they'd listen to C.S. Lewis talk about God and Jesus Christ. And they made it to the war. And those talks, of course, they were collected, weren't they? And they were published in what we call mere Christianity. And millions and millions of people have been touched by that book, born out of the struggles. In fact, that's what helped Chuck Colson come to Christ, was that book. Well, Let's fast forward again. And let's go to Eastern Europe, and I'll, I'll close with this, this story here. These were tough, tough times. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe and Russia. 
but when it's communist and now that it's not. It's tough, tough life, as you can imagine. But in the late 1980s, things began to fall apart. In fact, it was in Poland where the walls began to crack. All those people going to church and praying. In Leipzig, in East Germany, a small group gathered in the Church of St. Nikolai and began to pray. A small handful of people. And after they would pray at night, they would take candles and they'd go out and they'd prayer walk. And then there were a dozen. And then there were a thousand. And then there were 500,000, almost the whole city. And the same thing happened in East Berlin, the communist sector of the, cap the capital. Small group, larger and larger. And then the beginning of November 1989, a million people all up against the wall, that horrid, horrid Berlin wall. And the soldiers didn't know what to do. They got their guns and, you know, what, what do they do? People are praying. But then on that night, somebody took a hammer and hit the wall. And somebody else did, and somebody else did. And the wall came down. The wall came down. Senator Sam Nunn said this. He said, the Cold War ended not in a nuclear inferno like we all expected, but in the churches and in the candles of the Christians of Eastern Europe. They prayed. They prayed. The next day, there was this huge banner in Leipzig that said, Wir danken dir, Kirch. We thank you, church. Now, that doesn't make great headlines, does it? But most people over there know that that's where we were. So as we read the Bible, as we go book by book, don't, don't miss the point of what God is doing, how God is getting his family back and how he wants to use us. All we do is say, here I am, Lord. And watch what he does. What can this church do? I think I shared with you at our little church in um, Western North Carolina, we took a five-mile radius and we're gonna meet every need in those five miles. We just found out there's 800 foster children that are unplaced in our, in our county. Some of them are families, two or three kids together. So our little church, we're, gonna, we're building homes. We've got a lot of retired missionaries and they're gonna be parents and these families, these kids, we're gonna find places for them. The single moms, the opioid epidemic is just awful. But we think that's what happens. You know what's interesting about that is that we are doing this and people say, oh, that's social justice. No, it's not. We're, we're meeting the needs. We're being a blessing. And all these people are coming to our church now. I spoke, uh, I speak there about once a month and this, this young man came up to me after. He said, um, I haven't been to church in 15 years. I don't know why I came today. He said, can you, can you help me? <laughs> so I've got him in a group of guys meeting and uh, uh, he was living with a girl and doing all these kind of things, long story. But now they're getting married and uh, 
He's growing in the Lord. It's just cool. When when we start doing these things, it's amazing what the Spirit of God does in bringing people. So I guess my challenge is that, and I'll segue you into that more next week, but the idea of the big movements of God come from the small faithfulness of his followers. Every day. Take up that cross every day. So three three things to think about and we're done. First, just a reminder. God has called you to live differently. I'm Scottish, so we like to say different. God calls us to live different. But it's an adverb, I realize that, but that's okay. And, and I'll talk about why that's important next week, because, but, but it really is. We, we, we conform too much, and so people say, why should I be like you? You're no different than me. Secondly, God is at work restoring the world through Christ. That's what God is, that's his primary. He's a father getting his family back, and he wants us to join with him. We see it in the scriptures, and we see it in history. And then finally, God uses us to display truth and grace, reality and love to our broken world. And it's broken. The early church, when they were persecuted, when they were tortured, when they were murdered, they didn't say, this is horrible. They just said, Jesus said it'd be like this. And they served gladly. So should we. So, Stone Ridge, the challenges are great. You have a wonderful Lord. We are so blessed. And when Michael said he was going to the Holy Land, I said, well, you already live in Nashville. <laughs> but there's a lot of work here too, isn't there? So what I, I'm gonna pray for us, and I'd like for you to think of some individuals in your sphere of influence, your family, your friends, coworkers, and so on, who really need a touch from God. And ask God that maybe you can be that person. And it's not necessarily giving them a track. It's praying. Do you really believe this prayer work? Does it? Okay. That's three of you. (laughs) It does. One of the beautiful truths is that God being outside time, you want to talk to God, he gives you his fully undivided attention. He does that all the time. That's what he promises. And he also promises that God takes into account all the prayers. I believe that. And I think you should too.